Everything in the central area here in Hollywood is being funneled toward the Pantages Theater because this is Oscar night. And keep your eyes on the losers tonight as they applaud the winners. You'll see great understanding, great sportsmanship, great acting. Well, the only thing left to say is, meet the champion. Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movie that has the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I am one of your hosts, Danny Vincent. And with me always are these other two hosts. Yeah. Uh, say blue hosts. No, we shouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that I, I was going to say, you know, I'm Sarah. I'm a professional virgin. But <laughs> one, of those, one of those statements would be untrue. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm your upstairs neighbor, Caleb, who is currently... Uh, about to die from COVID. Not actually, but I'm sure I sound like it. Now, we gotta give a disclaimer to the audience who might be scared. Don't worry! Caleb is at least a seven-hour drive away from me and Sarah. We are not going to catch it through the computer. Don't worry, I don't think anyone has ever listened to this podcast and was like, these three people are in the room together. (laughs) I'll do our grand countdown because it's going to take a while, but don't worry. This will be the only time I do this as the next time I'll do a very truncated one. Because that's right. This is part one of a three-part series on the 26th Academy Awards with 13 nominations. It was a film called From Here to Eternity. It won eight nominees. I won eight of them. Best Picture, Best Director for Fred Zinman. Best Supporting Actor for Frank Sinatra. Who's that guy? Best best Supporting Actress for Donna Reed. Best Adapted Screenplay. Best Sound Recording. Best Cinematography Black and White. And Best Film Editing. Then, with 10 nominations, was a little film known as Roman Holiday. Not Quovitis, which is just a Roman film. This is Roman Holiday. It won three of its 10 nominations. It won Best Actress for... A little unknown actress known as Audrey Hepburn. It won Best Story. And it won Best Costume Design for a Black and White Film. Then there were two films with six nominations. And both won one of their nominations. One award. Lily won Best Musical Score for a Dramatic Comedy Picture. And Shane won Best Cinematography for Color. Then there were two films that had five nominations. One, The Robe won two of its nominations, Art Direction Color and Costume Design Color. And one of them won, the other one was Julius Caesar, which just won Art Direction for Black and White Film. Then there were five films with three nominations. The, one of them was Calamity Jane, which won Best Original Song for a song called Secret Love. Then the other one was Stalag 17, which won Best Actor for William Holden. Now, there were three other films that had three nominations and no competitive wins. As such, we will be covering only the first one today, which is a little film known as The Moon is Blue. Sarah, what are the staggering three nominations that The Moon is Blue received? Well, first of all, I just want to side note. I'm shocked that Gregory Peck was not even nominated this year. But... Yeah, I noticed that. I was really surprised. <laughs> um, the Moon is Blue was nominated for... Best Actress for Maggie McNamara, who, of course, lost to Audrey Hepburn for Roman Holiday. 
Uh, best film editing for Otto Ludwig, who lost to William Lyon for From Here to Eternity. Uh, and best song for uh, the title song, The Moon is Blue, for Herschel Burt Gilbert and Sylvia Fine. And they lost to Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster for Calamity Jane. Um, and these two were the only ones who had ever been nominated again or before. Uh, Burke was nominated two more times for Best Score. And Fine was also nominated for Best Song for The Five Pennies. I will not do my Oscar ceremony segment today because we will come back to the ceremony two more times. And I already did the long countdown. So, Caleb, do you have any historical context on The Moon is Blue? Yeah, there's actually a lot I could talk about. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not, I don't have quite the energy level to talk too much. So, I'll just go with the most interesting thing, which is the effect this had on the uh, code. I almost said comics code, but that's the wrong thing. The Hayes Code had been in effect for uh, quite some time at this point, and as usually happens with rating systems, they start to get pushed back eventually. This film was one of those, um, talking very explicitly about sex, using the word sex, using the word virgin, um, and not having really any comeuppance for its uh, for any of its characters. This movie. Um, was definitely pushing some boundaries. Um, and the MPAA wasn't happy about that, but the film was um, cut down a little bit, but eventually released anyway without their approval. And a few years later, they would actually go on to revise the, uh, the code to be a little bit more lenient. Um, and then six years after that, of course, they would replace it with the letters rating system, which in some form persists today. Um, but this is an interesting uh, time capsule of what was controversial at the time, much like how Love Parade was considered kind of risque for the time. I think we will probably talk more about um, the story behind this film dealing with the censor board while we talk about it, because I think here's my hot take. I'll just drop right now. Uh, I think all that is way more interesting than the movie itself. Uh, so, uh, yeah, what did you guys uh think of the movie i thought it was uh well you guys go first my my take's honestly cliche so i'll still say it but i want to know what you guys thought first i was boring <laughs> i mean here's the thing so when i was a kid well when i was like 13 if this movie was made 10 years later and had like doris day in it then i would be like all over this and I think it's kind of like we're like almost to the screwball era, but not quite. I think this is like the precursor to those classic like Cary Grant's Doris Day, like that kind of movie. But we're like a decade off still. Okay. Interesting. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I I think this is an interesting film because of its kind of... Uh, status now as a time capsule not only of the rating stuff but also of the gender dynamics at the time and even down to things like household appliances which are a common motif throughout the film um there's just a lot of interesting like look-ins into 1950s life that i think makes this an interesting film um i will admit i'm a sucker for good banter between two people and i think this movie has a lot of good banter I won't stand behind everything that happens in the movie. I especially think around the third act, it kind of just loses any momentum. Um, 
but I enjoyed it for what it was. I probably fall more with Sarah on it, although I don't really have the screwball comedy context of Cary Grant movies. I obviously know about His Girl Friday, which I believe is around this time. Uh, His Girl Friday and Bringing Up Baby would have been before this. Earlier, yeah. Uh, yeah, so screwball movies... No, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong, Sarah, but good screwball movies already exist, even if they aren't like Doris Day and Cary Grant. So I don't think, to me, there's any excuse for this to be as dull as it is. And as soon as I saw the opening credit, I don't know if it's in the opening credits or not, because I have the DVD copy, so I know it was on the back of the DVD, where it's like, this was based off a play. It is incredibly obviously based off a play. There are literally multiple moments in this movie, it's like, oh, we should go out. Like, no, let's stay in. Like, okay, yeah, because you got to keep your set there. But even Dead End felt more cinematic than this. Because I remember saying Dead End just felt like a stage play, too. Uh, Uh, I don't know. Hmm. That, sorry, Dead End does not look like a play at all. If you go back and you no, watch I was talking about Greg Cohen's di- cinematography. About, no, no, I'm talking about the dialogue in that. Like how the dialogue when this is very written to be like a play too. Like it's very. Oh, okay. I get you. Like, oh, well, this thing just happened off stage, you know, and that's Dead End's dialogue is like that too, even though, yes, it is shot way better than this is. Uh, and I know I gave Dead End a negative review, but like to me, I am glad we watched, well, not like we have a choice, but I am glad we watched this because I think historically reading the Wikipedia article for this movie is way more interesting than the movie itself. Um, a lot of cool stuff going on here behind the scenes, both in post-production and in like pre-production. And yeah, but I think the film itself is kind of like it exists, you know, definitely would like to watch like a TV movie about like the fight to get this to be shown in theaters. I think that'd be fun, but like not like anything interesting here i will say if we're talking about comparisons i think the two most direct ones are probably the apartment and seven year itch both which came after this but i do feel like this probably paved the way for those i haven't seen that so (laughs) i do need to see the apartment i I missed a screening of that earlier this year sadly all right so the movie basically about this girl who meets this architect on top of the empire state building uh he invites her into his office, which is the only sequence that doesn't feel like it's part of the stage play. Uh, I don't know if it is or not, but you know what I mean? Like, as soon as we get to it's her apartment, right? We get No, we get to his apartment. Her apartment? I'm sorry. His, his I watched apartment. this like two days ago. <laughs> I am. They go, they go to his, and then the rest of the movie is either spent there or in the apartment above them. Yeah, or in the hallway. When we get to that point, it's very like, oh, yeah, this is a stage play. But it's like we go to his office and He's flirting with her. He has like a relationship with his secretary that we find out he broke off like the day before, and that all comes to drama. Not a secretary. It's not his secretary. It is the daughter of his upstairs neighbor, who is a um, uh, kind of professional philanderer. The status of the characters is important. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The secretary thing. There's a couple of entendres there, and that's why I'm like. But it's just like a standard rom com. Uh, his upstairs neighbor, who's the father of her fiance, ends up flirting with the main girl a lot. And it's just, you know, they, they talk. I could see it being fun on stage in the 1940s and 1950s. I don't think the script as is, uh, which I presume is pretty close to a play, the play because that's usually how it be with these types of things. Uh, I don't think this would be very exciting to revive on stage today. There's a couple jokes that work. Most of them are due to... Really, just Maggie McNip, the female lead tactic. 
I think the interesting thing here is the the banter between our two leads is very much about um, kind of the roles of uh, of a woman and a man in life, but also in dating. And it's one of those classic screwball things where the man runs up against a woman who is more independent and more self-assured than he is expecting and has to learn how to kind of navigate that. And in this, uh, in this one, it really takes the form of our main character has, I would say, a lot of, like, she has a lot of axioms that ground her in her relationships. Um, and some of them are contradictory, but a lot of them are really well thought out. And I think it's really interesting to see them kind of butt heads over that. And when the upstairs neighbor gets involved, um, that just kind of escalates. Yeah. I, I this movie is um I don't want to say it's exactly what it says on the tin because obviously the moon is blue doesn't tell you anything other than ooh this might be a little risque it's blue uh at least that's how I read the title uh but it's a little little it's a little dull I do have one moment of the movie that really stuck out to me that I want to talk about all right it's the best cut I've seen in a while I wonder if you guys caught it. There's a moment where I believe he calls Cynthia, who's his uh, mistress from before, and she's in the bathtub. No, she calls him. Okay, she calls him. See, I couldn't remember. Do you, you know what cut I'm talking about? I <laughs> do, and I, I don't go on. <laughs> so uh, she picks up the phone and she's like, oh, I can come over whenever you want. And he's just like, all right, yeah, sure. Just coming through the back, whatever. And then he hangs up the phone. And then you hear like this very like body music. I think that's the way I'd say it. Like, you know, exactly that music. And then she like slowly as she's, <laughs> it is. The <laughs> <laughs> so the womp, the Grinch music is playing as she steps out and we get like shot of her feet and her legs, but it's like, it cuts mid music. It's like blah, blah, blah. we all everyone's dying the head right now. So this stood out to everyone watching this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I if I had had a little bit more energy today, I would have looked up the uh, origin of the sexy sax trope. But this very much feels like proto that because it doesn't know how to stick the landing. The the song at the beginning in the opening credits also cuts off like mid note too. What is very hysterical to me is like, it's very much like, ooh, this is the, like, you can tell, you know, everyone wants to see this movie because it's like, ooh, we want to, we're going to talk about that more. So it's not, it's like, this is the moment where it's like, it's so sexy. It's so hot. And it's like, wah, 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 wah. And you're like, ooh, we might actually get to see something. Then we just cut to like, Wolf Holden walking and going like, I gotta go. <laughs> I, I checked out the uh, copy of, uh, from the library, which has lies on the back of it. It talks about, uh, some because uh, it says on the uh, Wikipedia page that the later legend was that virgin mistress and pregnant was were all singled out as objectionable words, but uh, that's not true. But that is that's what's on the back of the cover of the DVD I got. Now I was gonna bring up something else, unless unless there's anything else specifically about the movie you want to talk about, because I think we can do a full episode of this movie if we talk about like the stuff going around it, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here to talk about around the film. I think that is kind of a shame because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in the dialogue to get into too, but especially with you watching a few days ago, I'm not sure. And me being like this, I'm not sure we can quite have that conversation, but um, I'll go to bat for this movie. I think it's interesting. I think it's definitely worth a watch. 
not just because of the sexy sax, but because <laughs> there is a, I think there's a lot of meat on the bone here. Um, and like I said, I don't think it all holds up. It definitely is, you know, it's a reflection of the time and should be watched in that light. But it's a, it's, it's still a movie I think is valuable, um, both for its place in film history, its reflection of the 1950s, and also because I do think that Otto Preminger, while his, uh, while his filmmaking is very subtle here, it is also very well done. Um, it does look like a it does look like a play often, but I still think that um, Otto Privinger knows what he's doing here um, when it comes to the camera work and stuff like that. You know what this movie reminds me of? It reminds me of Sabrina, which came out the next year and stars William Holden an Academy Award winner, Audrey Hepburn, and Humphrey Bogart. It's the same sort of premise. It's, I don't know if you've seen Sabrina, um, but it's a young, a young woman and then two men, and one of them is older. Um, and she's kind of, like, naive, and they, like, kind of have to, like, groom her. But not in that way, but kind of in that way, I guess. <laughs> um, but... It just reminds me of like a proto Sabrina. Like it's, it doesn't have the charm that Sabrina has, I feel like. And I think maybe that might have to do with its female lead, maybe. Uh, she's doing like a very, she's clearly imitating uh, Aubrey Hepburn off this. Is she? You she can't kind really, of, you kind you of can't get that really imitate maybe. someone. But okay, yeah, yeah. But. If Audrey Hepburn was in Roman Holiday this year, which was her star-making performance, can we really say that she's imitating someone who probably is not even known by the time, in the, time the movie is in production? I think That's fair. Well, I think it's more like this sort of European style of like, how do I explain it? Like, like Audrey Hepburn did have this type of speaking voice and accent, but she was... Belgian, and I think it kind of, and they kind of lampshaded it in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but um, it is kind of that like young woman who's like European who then comes to America and she's so unique, like that type of thing. Even though Maggie McMurray was American, but it's like that type of like on vogue, like it girl type of thing. How was her career after this? I feel like it would be safe to say, obviously. Obviously, Audrey Hepburn is a legend, right? Like, how did Maggie McNamara's uh, career go after this? Because I'm ooh, well, looking at it now. It doesn't seem that great. I'm glad you asked. Uh, she <laughs> was in three more movies after this. And she died of barbiturate overdose uh, at a very young age. It looks like, uh, yeah, and her other three roles were not very... Not really a... Uh, Movies I recognize. Uh, I do see she was in a Twilight Zone episode called Ring-A-Ding Girl, but I don't know. I've never heard of this episode, you know? So, like, uh, must not really be a classic one, you know? Should we talk about uh, the story behind this? Because the, the interesting stuff surrounding this movie, because I definitely want to mention one thing. It has to do with Caleb's shirt that he's wearing right now, and I'm wondering if it's intentional he wore it. That has to be intentional. <laughs> it's got to be intentional. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
for everyone in the world that isn't Sarah or Caleb right now, or me, Caleb is currently wearing a MASH shirt. There is an entire MASH episode about this movie titled The Moon Is Not Blue. Uh, it's about them trying to see the moon is blue and getting a chip to them because it got a got you know banned everywhere and so it's like Ooh. i remember that episode yeah uh and it ends with the ending i'll just read the wikipedia description of the ending which is uh the moon is blue eventually arrives at the pan- camp and is seen screened at the full house hawkeye and bj are disappointed by the lack of promised sexually explicit content hawkeye declares that he's never seen a cleaner movie in his life father Mulke, Mulke i haven't watched show father what Mulkegi. Mulkegi. Mulcahy points out that one of the actors did say virgin, to which Hawkeye replies with the last line of the episode, exasperated. That's because everybody was. Do, 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 do. I love funny. MASH, y'all. MASH is such a good show. I remember when I uh, took my name as Hawkeye at my first summer camp job, and some people there were like, oh, from MASH? And I was like, what? The Avengers, like, <laughs> the Avengers of Ultron came out this summer. What? Before I get into the other interesting stuff here, David Neven won Best Lead Actor in a Musical or Comedy at the Globes for this role. I don't think he's the lead. Nope. Sure ain't. Now, before we talk about the, the fight with the censors, we got to talk about the coolest part of the production of this movie, which is that it was made at the same time as a German version of the exact same film with different cast, like German actors using all the same sets. Uh, and the German leads cameo as a tourist couple at the top of the Empire State Building. Uh, and meanwhile, Holden and McNamara in the German version are also cameo as a couple at the top of the building in Germany, wherever that is. <laughs> I think that's so fascinating. I think people don't think about how people solve this idea beyond just uh, dubbing you know at this time in history i think the idea of just let's just do it let's just do it twice you know uh i think that's really interesting well and there are a lot i know with dracula which was also dubbed in or not dubbed but also filmed in spanish a lot of people think that the spanish language version is better well in this case uh it seems pretty much agreed this is the better version because the, let me find the quote, because Preminger expressed his preferences uh, very clearly, which is he prefers the English one. He preferred the moon is blue because the psychology of the plot did not translate overseas well. So basically he's like, this movie's too American, <laughs> is uh, at least the psychology. I presume he means the sexual politics of it at the time. Uh, I don't know much about the air of what it was like to be single in Germany in the 1950s. But, yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention that Caleb didn't mention when we were talking about the history of it uh, fighting the censors and affecting the hates code is that there was a Supreme Court case over this film being distributed. Big, big fan of the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, we love them. Right now. <laughs> uh, so, it was banned in Jersey City. In Kansas, they banned the film. And Preminger uh, appealed to release it in Kansas, but the Supreme Court of Kansas was like, nope, we still are banning this movie. So then Preminger took it to the Supreme Court in a case called Holmby versus Vaughn, where the Supreme Court 
overruled Kansas with the uh, this uh, what's the word for it? I always forget. The ruling being uh, the question here is not one of either great art or even of particularly good taste. So I guess the Supreme Court did not really like the movie. Uh, it is rather a question over American movies are continually allowed to be hamstrung by rules that combine picture themes, picture morals, and picture language to what is deemed trip fit for children or childlike mentalities. So uh, I think it's pretty interesting. I think it's interesting that it went all the way to Supreme Court. Especially with um in World War Two, probably the most of the domestic uh population who was going to movies probably were kids. Yeah, well this is a couple of these kids are now probably like in their twenties, you know, so they're the ones watching the moon is blue. Mm-hmm. Uh and this was apparently not uh Preminger's only run in with the uh code because Zover film The Man with the Golden Arm also was released condemned. And that is uh after this film. Not the man with the golden gun. Sadly. When are we getting to that on the podcast? <sighs> Sadly, no Bond films qualify for this podcast. Although, that's probably a good thing, because I feel like the one that would qualify would be like Spectre, or because the recently Bond films get way more nominations than they used to. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm okay with not, not having to cover a Bond movie. <laughs> Um, all right. Is there anything else y'all want to talk about here? Because I was like, I'm really, ex- I was like, I'm really excited to talk about this, uh, this, uh, history behind the movie. And it seems like y'all seem kind of bored with it. So just like I was bored with the film. So it's like, whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, it's interesting, dude. I'm just like, I am operating at like 10% right now. <laughs> That's fair. Sarah, do you have anything else you want to say about this movie? Um, I don't I guess my like faux deep statement would be in the year 2022 well this year 1953 this movie is considered so controversial so banworthy and then in the year 2022 we get a movie about Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe that needs a second editor because it's too graphic what a world what a world we live in. Is it in. only two? I'm actually honestly surprised it's only two. I felt like that was going to be referring to Andrew Dominic's Blonde that's coming out later this year. Um, I actually assumed it was one of those movies that had like four editors. I <laughs> you believe know, like, it's uh, only two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just, well. I'm just, I'm curious where, I guess we'll see it gradually. Where the, where it kind of, you know, we get a little more risque in the 60s. We start to see a little nudity. Um, 70s, you know, we're, we're in war era. 80s, we're in Cold War era. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see where when we'll start to get a little naughty. I imagine it will be kind of uh, mid-70s, because I imagine the uh, it's when the new Hollywood stuff, like, they can't ignore it. Like, because they could ignore, like, Easy Rider. But it was harder when, you know, all these, like... Uh, I don't know what I'm saying. I mean, I feel like the development of... I don't, I don't want to be like, the development of prudishness in film is... It's directly, of course, related to, like, American politics and the rise of conservatism and the moral panic that belongs there. And it's too much to get to right now, just because I'm sure it will come up later on. But I always think about how, like, 
what was the thing I think? Like, I think people talk about how like the the movie, the the first Santa Claus movie is rated G, and there's like a lot of like very blatant double entendre jokes in it. And then like I don't know, that's that's a weird example. I don't know. It's I feel like when PG thirteen arrives, that's when it kind of changes, honestly. Because PG-13 becomes PG, and R becomes PG-13, and then NC-17 becomes what R used to be. You know? What was this nominated for? It was nominated for Best Actress for Maggie McNamara. Best Film Editing. Joke. Uh, (laughs) That's the best cut I've seen in a while. (laughs) Best Song for The Moon is Blue, which we didn't talk about. <laughs> we did talk about the cut as the end. Um, I mean, only one of these deserve to be nominated, and that is to me kind of questionable, just because I don't know the competition. But I'll just go with Maggie. Maggie Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's it. But we can't. We we can't. Like in that case, like what these other two are terrible. Like Audrey Hepburn will win again. I'm sure. Like, I gotta go with Maggie McNamara. Sorry, Audrey. I'm gonna say best song because I can't. In, <laughs> I can't in good con. I can't in good conscience give it to her. I just can't. The song's not bad. It's it's whatever. Um, wish I could hear the whole thing, but that last uh, measure of it will forever be lost to time. No, I'm gonna wait, give wait. it to Maggie McNamara as well. I think she's good. Hold on. About the song, how do we know it's lost the time? What if when the, they come back in at the end, it's just the rest of the song? We just we, we've watched a ninety minute movie in between of it, so we forgot how it goes. That's true. <laughs> That's true. We have to dig up the sheet music. <laughs> it's no, it's right. no Hans Christian Andersen. That's for sure. All right, Adonam. Man, I don't know. I'm so tired. I don't know. <laughs> Who else was in this movie? Because I feel like you have to give it to an actor just because nothing well, else is happening. William Holden was the lead. David Neiman was the other guy. I'm uh, going to give it. I'm going to give it to. Man, I really want to do something dumb and give it to the guy who played the taxi driver. No, I'll give it to David Nevin for a supporting actor. He's fun enough. Uh, sir, before you answer i just realized one thing we could talk about this movie or at least acknowledge about this movie that'd be fun to acknowledge before we totally move on is this is another a cap movie yay you know what we didn't we didn't talk about william holden winning the oscar that year at all yeah he did win for another movie (laughs) (laughs) he also has the shortest speech in history oh no no we're gonna this is okay but it's the the, same it's relevant it's the same actor Okay, you can bring it up now. It's a little tease. No, it's a little tease. I won't tell you what this. I won't tell you what the speech is. All right, Caleb, you wanted to respond to me saying this movie was a little a cab of. Is it? So explain, expound. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it is. I think the movie's fine. Like, there's nothing really against this cop dad. Like, he comes in, and the characters are inconvenienced by him, but it's not like, oh man, this cop is bad. I hate cops. Put that it's in fine. The it's just this is an A cab episode. All right, so Sarah, what noms do you give it? There's a dog in it. There is a dog. However, oh I didn't love the dog. I thought the dog was not used to his full we potential. Should that. We should we should cut out that little bit that we can throw in any time the movie has a dog. You forget to mention. We'll just have Sarah go. I didn't love the dog. 
<laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I love the dog, but I didn't love his performance. There's no, I uh, made that no dog skippy. for the Razzies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really don't want to give it to any of the actors. Like, I really don't. I'm going to give it to Best Costume Design, black and white, because there was a dress in it that was very ruffly. It made a lot of noise, which I thought was actually really interesting. That would be my pick. All right. I knew this almost immediately after finishing the movie. And reading the Wikipedia page. For going above and beyond in taking care of this movie and trying to get it out there, I'll just give Otto Preminger a nom for director because he really did like, I'm going to sue the Supreme Court. I'm going to take this case to the Supreme Court so my movie come out of Kansas. And then also he did that like cool thing of, I'm going to shoot the movie twice in different languages. I think for both doing the like ambitious, I'm making two movies out. I know it's not ambitious. I know you said other people have done this, but for a movie like this that isn't like Dracula, like this is just this is not like attempting to be a blockbuster movie. I think that's cool to do that for the German audience. And then I do think like, you know, going so, again, above and beyond the call of duty to get this movie released the way he wanted it to without cutting anything. I'll give him a director nom. Like, good for him. I might not have liked this movie, but he really put a lot of effort into it post movie. So, And he is a good director. Like his other stuff is more cinematic than this. All right, so you guys remember last week I said, don't worry, the other two this year I know are going to be really exciting. Or at least I'm really excited to see the other two. I don't know anything about the Moon of Blue. So next week we're going to be back at the 26th, next, you know, next episode. I'll restate that. Next episode, we will be back at the 26th Academy Award, another film that has three nominations and no wins. Drum roll, please. I think this will get both of you very excited if you don't know what movie it is. All right, we are going to watch a film by one of my favorite directors from the 40s and 50s, Vincent Minnelli. We're going to watch The Bandwagon. I love musicals. I love Vincent Minnelli movies. I cannot wait to watch The Bandwagon. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. <laughs> you guys excited? No? Yes? Maybe? Um... <laughs> When I am physically capable of being excited, I will be excited. I'm going to be honest. I feel like I'm probably going to be more excited for our other movie. Well, the other one is exciting, too. But yes. I, I, every Vincent Minnelli movie I've seen, I've loved. So, yeah. I'm a little, su- I mean, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't ever see Judy, but I'm a little sus. Because I need to know if he was a good husband before I decide to cancel. Well, I were th- was he with Judy at the time this movie came? You know, they've divorced by this time. So, and Judy's not in the bandwagon. Mm. Don't expect to see her pop up. It's too bad. <laughs> Who is in it? I see Fred Astaire is in it. It's it's Fred Astaire and uh, Elizabeth. Oh no, I'm looking at I'm looking at the, the Oscars page and I just see Elizabeth Taylor is in it. It is a Fred Astaire movie. Uh, Oscar Levant is in it too. If you recognize that name. The Bandwagon is the 10th film we've watched that is in the uh, 1,000 Movies You Must See Before You Die, whichever edition I got this in of the last year's 2014. Uh, It's our 10th movie that we watched that's also in this. Nice. I was really bored today, so I checked to see which movies we'd watch were in this book. Ah, Danny Vincent. You can find me on Letterboxd at Blankmans. 
find all my reviews. You can also find me on my other podcasts, Why Is with Ty and Dan, a Marvel podcast, and Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar Journey, which kind of says what that podcast is about on the tin. Find them wherever you find this podcast. I'm Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube, where I'm usually more lively. From there, you can find other podcasts like, uh, the, like not the Snub Club, Star Wars Therapy. We talk about Star Wars, Hot Trash Unlimited, where we talk about movies, and uh, All New 52, where we talk about comics. I do that with my our, our editor, Joe, um, who has his work cut out with him with this because I was hacking it up the whole time. I'm sorry, Joe. Thank you. <laughs> I like you saying uh, my editor. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know, man. I just want to get off so I can watch that episode of MASH again. What's my name again? Uh, my name is Sarah. Alexander uh, Hamilton. Sorry. Uh, that's not what you asked. My, you, can find, <laughs> you can find me on Letterboxd. My name, Sarah Knopf. Uh, and Twitter and Instagram. Um, at SGK29. E-S-S-G-E-K-A-Y 29. Um, you can find us on Facebook, the Snub Club, Twitter. Uh, Snub Club Pod, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast. All right. We'll see you next time when we all hop aboard the bandwagon. Bye. Bye.